This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. 67,000 federal employees are getting a pay raise. The Office of Personnel Management has announced that it will start to implement a $15 minimum wage for all government workers. The goal is to have the pay raise in place by January 30th. OPM Director Kieran Ahuja says the increase will help with recruitment, retention and productivity. Of the 67,000 employees that the pay raise affects, 56,000 of them are employed by the Defense Department. Federal News Network reports that the Thrift Savings Plan has wrapped up its 15-month financial systems modernization project. The FRTIB, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, has a new integrated system that will manage finances, acquisitions, and more. The new system will increase automation and reduce data errors. Representatives Jerry Connolly and Daryl Issa have launched their Congressional IT Modernization Caucus. The goal of the caucus is to bring more awareness to the government's need to embrace new technology and analytics. Issa and Connolly are also co-authors of FITARA, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, which aims to help manage IT systems for 24 different agencies. Cybersecurity risks threaten virtually every part of critical infrastructure in the U.S., and that includes the water supply. Four government agencies jointly issued an advisory that the water system is being targeted by malicious actors. Mark Montgomery is a senior director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Mark, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me. How bad is the cybersecurity of the nation's water supply? Well, among our 16 national critical infrastructures, in our assessment was that water was uh, the weakest critical infrastructure. And uh, and that matters because all critical infrastructures are, are linked. In other words, the energy infrastructure, which is in better shape, is reliant on a water supply for cooling effluent and things. So with everything being, all infrastructures being linked together, having water be your weakest link is a national security emergency. So who and why would attack the nation's water system? I think there's two different um, kind of attack uh, attack vectors here. The first is criminal actors could easily have attacked and could easily continue to attack the water supply for either ransomware purposes or uh, in order to just, uh, you know, create malicious activity. And then the second one is that adversaries and the uh, the recent four agency advisory referred to this, uh, nation state adversaries could put malware in the system very easily that they could then uh, affect during a crisis or contingency to weaken our critical infrastructures and our responses uh, to national emergencies. So Mark, is this just a threat or have there actually been real attacks against the water systems? There, there have been attacks, and we're starting to see the slight uptick, particularly with ransomware. There have been probably most famously um, uh, a year ago at the uh, Super Bowl. Um, the excuse me, uh, uh, two years ago at the Super Bowl, there it, the at the time of the Super Bowl, there was an attack in Oldsmar, Florida, where a um, uh, an actor who has yet to be identified entered the system and began to change the um, chemical set points 
on the uh, on, on the chemicals that are put in to uh, make the water cleaner. Um, uh, when when raised, though, those same chemicals can have a poisonous effect. So it, it was caught because uh, the the threat actor was maneuvering the system while someone was on it. You know, uh, someone and, and could observe that a second actor was in there. But but for that, uh, I think we would have had a, a significant incident. And uh, there have been there have been attacks like that in other places in Kansas and uh, in other states. And also there have been an increasing number of ransomware attacks against municipal water supplies. When you say significant incident, are we talking about mass amounts of people dying from being poisoned? <clears throat> no, I think that on something like this, you would have uh, the very young and the very old would be impacted first by a change in the chemical balance of the water. I think it would be determined reasonably rapidly by emergency responders that, hey, we're consistently having a problem with the water supply. There would be manual checks to back up the electronic checks that have been uh, that have been masked by the uh, by the perpetrator, and you would determine the water's bad. But here's the real issue. If I did that in two or three small districts around the United States, and social media and the news media collated all that information, began to broadcast in multiple areas, but there's been an impact on the chemical uh, on the chemical injection systems for our water supply, there'd be a broad loss of credibility because most people sitting at home really don't know whether they're the chemistry, you know, what the chemistry, what it should taste like with good chemistry or bad chemistry. And, and there would definitely be widespread panic as well. Exactly. So, so Mark, which federal agency is responsible for securing the water supply? Well, I, the principal federal agency called the Sector Risk Management Agency is the Environmental Protection Agency and has been for nearly 25 years. So does the EPA, do you think, have the resources and expertise it needs to address this problem? Uh, no, no, they don't. And that's one of the issues. So there are a number of sector risk management agencies, one for each of our critical infrastructures, and they're very inconsistent across the government. There's some areas where, say, financial services where there's a number of regulators very aggressively regulating the banking system of our country. There's others like energy, where there's a strong Department of Energy, energy utilities uh, partnership. But then in EPA, they're neither resourced nor organized for success here. The EPA has a lot of really important responsibilities, and uh, I you know, read that they're executing those well. But here in, in cybersecurity, they, they have not risen to the challenge, and it's a tough challenge, because there are 50,000 water utilities in our country. And that is a very dispersed uh, set uh, in, uh, infrastructure for the EPA to work with. And they are struggling in that job and they're very poorly resourced for the challenge ahead. So how do you think the federal government can encourage private water utilities to increase their investments in cybersecurity? Well, I, I think there's, there's uh, several legs to this stool. The first is, the companies themselves do need to invest more. Um, one of the reasons we're so vulnerable is two to three decades ago, we began to highly automate the water distribution system. In other words, the pumps and valves that the, and the chemical injection systems that run our water system have become automated. And that saved us a lot of money because we have computers doing work humans were doing. Now, at the time, there didn't appear to be a cybersecurity threat and there were not investments made in cybersecurity. Well, fast forward 20 years, there are cybersecurity threats. Some of those savings from the personnel reductions need to be put in that. So first, the, the, they, the utilities need to help themselves. But second, the, the uh, EPA needs to do two broad things. First is work with industry to establish the appropriate standards that different size water utilities need to meet. 
and and then uh, alongside that, begin to make their um, their uh, grant programs accessible, more accessible to cybersecurity needs. Currently, you can get a cybersecurity grant, but that same grant sits alongside um, grants for droughts, for low sea levels, for natural disasters, for climate change. You know, kind of like the four sides of the apocalypse or cybersecurity and in the end that money goes to the four signs of the apocalypse not to cybersecurity which is kind of seen as a threat somewhere in the future and as a result we are not doing the kind of cybersecurity upgrades that need to be done all right well mark we appreciate you highlighting this issue thank you very much for being on the program thank you for having me up next omb is asking for feedback on a draft of its new learning agenda straight ahead on government matters what that means for strengthening the federal workforce and advancing equity goals we'll be right back Federal workers, researchers, and private citizens have until January 31st to submit feedback about the president's management agenda. The Office of Management and Budget, OMB, has released a draft learning agenda to identify ways to coordinate implementation of President Biden's management goals. Robert Shea is former associate director at OMB. He's currently at Grant Thornton. Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. So this is the first time OMB has released uh, a draft learning agenda. What is it and what's the goal? So, you know, learning agendas uh, are designed to articulate the big questions that agencies have for uh, helping them achieve their mission. And uh, agencies are putting those together. They're going to be released later in the spring. OMB is not obligated to do the same thing, but they took it upon themselves since they're asking the rest of government to do it, to put out there the big questions they think could help them better implement the management priorities of the Biden administration. Well, that management budget really has some lofty goals. So how does this learning agenda really turn those goals into something more practical? Well, it, it'll be, it'll, it's a draft. So they're eliciting comment from the community. That's why it's so great you're talking about this. Your audience is invited to review it at performance.gov, give OMB ideas about how to improve it. But right now it asks, how can we, you know, what are the best practices? What do we know? What does the research tell us about the best ways to recruit, retain, and keep engaged a diverse workforce? What are the um, best practices in enhancing customer experience so we remove barriers to access to government benefits and programs? How can um, we improve equity? What programs are best to ensure that the government's programs are reaching its intended beneficiaries, especially when um, we're having a hard time reaching traditionally underserved communities. So those are sort of the big practical questions that they're trying to get answers to. And so let's, let's go through some of those. Um, you mentioned uh, strengthening the federal workforce. Um, what's in the draft about that and what might be missing? Well, the, 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 good, the, the easy thing about a learning agenda is that it poses the big questions. Recruitment, retention, engagement have been a consistent challenge for the government. And so they're asking the community not only what, what are the right questions to ask in this context, but let's marshal our resources and research around things that can uh, actually tackle this longstanding, seemingly intractable challenge. You know, another piece of the learning agenda talks about building trust in the government, which has been low uh, lately. 
um, through service delivery and improving that service delivery. What's, what's in the agenda about that and what gaps might there be? Yeah, it's a lofty thing to set a target to strengthen trust in government because, as you know, it's been on the decline for decades. Um, and one of the best ways we can improve trust in government is, number one, to measure it. So the, the learning agenda asks, what's the right way to measure trust in government? And how can we improve the service we provide to citizens in a way that strengthens that, that moves the needle? And so y you and I engage the federal government programs on a regular basis. We know that it's not always the most pleasant experience. So enhancing that, and one of the things the president's management agenda does in, in, the, in the customer experience context is it wants to look at your life events from birth to death and make sure that when you interact with the government, you don't have to enter the same information more than once, that, that the, the way the government is engaging you is as seamless as possible. These are difficult times generally in, in people's lives, and we want, the government wants to make it easier to interact with it where, where citizens have to. Who is actually going to be responding to this? I mean, I know it's, you know it's supposed to be everybody, but really, who is going to respond? That's a really good question. Um, there, there are, of course, agencies that have research in these spaces. Um, the private sector, of course, is selling services, so they know what, what experience seemed to work on the ground. But, you know, the, there are public policy schools across the country churning out uh, kids to uh, enter into public service. They make up things to do research on. To me, this is an excellent opportunity for those research institutions to focus their, their teaching their kids research methods on questions that really the government wants answers to the most. So that's what, that's what I'm hoping. Do you think this will be useful in the end? I hope so. I, I'm, I'm interested in seeing the learning agendas that agencies are going to publish this spring to see what common challenges span government. Um, you know, you, you hear every day more than most, Mimi, what the big challenges are facing government. If we can combine resources to find what really works in solving those challenges, that could really be a game changer. All right. Well, Robert, thanks very much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. Russia continues to move troops and tanks to its western border with Ukraine. Russia could also be moving troops to neighboring Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north. Retired Air Force General Philip Breedlove was one of six geographic combatant commanders and supreme allied commander of NATO. He's currently distinguished chair at the Middle East Institute and professor at Georgia Tech. General, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So it looks like several rounds of diplomacy have failed. What are options are there to deter Russia? Well, <clears throat> you're correct. It looks like that uh, to this point, uh, those talks have failed, but I don't think it's time to give up on them. I, I agree with Secretary Blinken. There is still time to try to work this out. It really boils down to what uh, 
Mr. Putin uh, wants to accomplish. He's assembled uh, a force for a purpose to try to bend the West to meet his demands, and, and we'll see how uh, it goes from here. As far as further deterrence, uh, um, you know, we have we have taken a path of sort of spoken deterrence to this point. We've done uh, fairly little actual movement of capability, uh, et cetera, uh, as far as a more physical deterrent. Uh, and so there are still options. Um, and I'm so what do you I mean, General, by a physical deterrent? Well, for instance, some, and uh, I'm not proposing them, but some have proposed troop movements. Uh, uh, the president has clearly taken troops to Ukraine off the table, uh, but troop movements to other places in NATO to reinforce uh, our allies, to be ready if there's any spread of the conflict that uh, Russia seeks to engage in, et cetera. So, there are plenty of options out there. And I, I must say that uh, um, some talk about no troops in Ukraine, but we've had troops in Ukraine for a long time. We have a long-standing training detachment at Yavriv training grounds and other places. So um, this is kind of a, a bit of a play on words. Ukrainian intelligence is reporting that Russia has been moving stockpiles of ammunition, field hospitals, and security services to the border. Do you think that means that they're ready to attack and they're not bluffing? Well, clearly they have been doing that also in the past, but what we see now is a little bit more of a logistical push uh, that would bring the enablers that Russia would need to to. Uh, actually invade if they wanted to, uh, or we should, I think, to be correct, say reinvade, as Russia has already invaded Ukraine twice in the past, uh, and so the recent past. And so I think that these movements of logistical capabilities are being reported by more than just the Ukrainian military. You were the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, the SACUR. Did you have any interactions with President Putin? No, no, I, uh, <clears throat> he wouldn't even remember. I shook his hand once and didn't, didn't even say his name. We were at the 70th anniversary of Normandy at Sword Beach during a huge uh, uh, um, celebration of that great event, and I was sitting right behind him. But no, I've had no personal interaction with Mr. Putin. Take us through a scenario, General. What happens if Russia invades Ukraine? Should there be a military response, or should it just be sanctions and diplomacy? Well, uh, I'm not going to be in the business of advising our government. Let's just look back at how things have played out in the past. In 2008, Russia invaded Georgia, and they still occupy yeah. South Ossetia and Abkhazia, they still occupy a huge chunk of Georgia. And the West really did not respond in, uh, in stringent ways. Lots of condemnation, sanctions, and the things that we normally do. But what we see now is that has not changed Mr. Putin's behavior. In 2000, the fall of 2013 and the spring of 14, Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine twice. Russia still occupies Crimea. 
and Russian forces are still in the Donbass, propping up the proxy forces there um, and giving them sustenance and supply. So what we have seen in the past is that this sort of coercive diplomacy and sanctions have not worked. They have not changed Mr. Putin's behavior at all. And I, I think it's pretty much human behavior, isn't it? If you reward bad behavior, what do you expect to get more of? Bad behavior. If you've ever raised a two-year-old, you know how this works. And so what we have done in the past has not worked. And now we need to examine other avenues of how to attack this. We have all manner of government tools, diplomatic tools, informational tools, military tools, and economic tools. And it seems with Russia, all we are uh, apt to use are economic sanctions. I think we should begin to look at the other tools of state. So what do you think about the role NATO should play in a potential military response? Well, first, though, first of all, we are a part of NATO. So this is a royal we. So when we talk about NATO, it also talks about us. And I do believe that uh, Article 3, uh, everybody, everybody always wants to talk about Article 5 when it comes to NATO, but Article 3 in short-term Georgia boy parlance says defense begins at home. And so I believe that our European uh, allies, friends, and partners need to be looking hard at what's happening in their backyard. And are we going to accept now, as we have in the past, are we going to accept now and into the future that Russia can use its land military force to change internationally recognized borders in the Eurasian landmass? Because that's what we've accepted to this point. All right. Well, General, I appreciate you being with us on the program. Thank you very much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service 
It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.